Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Dr. Jennifer Verdelin. Jennifer is an animal behavior researcher specializing in social and mating behavior. She's currently an assistant professor at the University of Arizona, as well as an adjunct professor at Duke University. Jennifer is the author of two books, including Wild Connection, What Animal Courtship and Mating Tells Us About Human Relationships, and Raised by Animals, The Surprising New Science of Animal Family Dynamics. Jennifer was also a longtime featured guest on the popular D.L. Hewley Show, uh, where she dished out relationship advice. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for coming on the show today. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm really excited. Can you tell me a little bit about your background and your work? Um, Yeah, so I study animal behavior and I've been interested in that for a really long time. I got my start um, working with chimpanzees and orangutans, and I basically have been always interested in social behavior and the relationships that animals have with each other and why they do the things that they do. And and so I've spent a large part of my life looking at that and asking different questions. And, And ultimately that led me to how are we similar or different in a, a lot of ways from other animals. I'm so excited. I, I, a few years ago, I read both of Jane Goodall's books. Well, her first two books. I don't know how many books she has, but I read the first two books, one on the way to California and the other on the way back. Uh, and it was so fascinating. There's so many similarities between chimpanzees and humans, which leads me to my first question. I want to talk to you a little bit about or ask you about first impressions. What are some similarities between the way animals and humans assess mates when they first meet them or how, how they interact with mates when they first meet them? Yeah, uh, that's a really great question. So so it's not so different from how we do it. Uh, it but for for animals, uh, the pri- for other animals, the, the primary uh, first pass is on appearance. Um, and so first impressions matter and uh, they usually assess one another based on the way that they look. And that gives them a, a ton of information about the potential quality um, or the compatibility uh, with with a potential mate. What are some of the things that they look for? It varies from species to species. So if you're a barnacle goose, um, size matters, <laughs> how big you are so um, and how similar in size you are. So they tend to pair up with individuals that are more similar in body size. There's a, a lot of other characteristics they may look at later, but the first pass is what they look like. So, so for barnacle geese, it might be size. For um, birds, many birds, like let's say cardinals, it might be how red the male is. And for um, something uh, like a peacock, uh, it, it's not so much how big the tail is. It's not um, uh, so much uh, how many... Uh, spots the the tail has, uh, although females pay attention to that, but it's how symmetrical the the male is. And so symmetry uh, in the face or in the body or in uh, the decoration that's on the body uh, is, is, is are some of the traits that that other animals look at um, to decide whether or not they should continue the process. <laughs> Yeah, it's awesome. How, how is that similar to humans? 
Yeah, uh, well, you know, it, it, so we, whether we like it or not, whether we want to admit it or not, uh, we care very much about what a potential mate looks like. And we make decisions really quickly. So um, the research on humans shows that within a tenth of a second, we know whether or not we're attracted to somebody. But it's not just physical attractiveness that we make a, a, a judgment on because we we basically react as if there's a relationship between attractiveness and other things like trustworthiness, competency, uh, friendliness, or likability. And so the physical appearance is the first thing that we look at and we then make a bunch of judgments that go along with that. Uh, and so for humans, uh, things matter like uh, appearance in, in the certain traits are for, for men, they care about things like waist to hip ratio. Um, so uh, uh, for women, they may care about hair color. They may care about uh, body size, uh, symmetry of the face. So we share that trait with baboons. So baboon uh, females prefer males that are more symmetrical in the face, prefer baboon males. <laughs> and, uh, and human males and females prefer more symmetrical faces as well. Um, and so symmetry is a common feature throughout humans and other animals in terms of uh, what we find attractive. Why is symmetry important? Well, <clears throat> so when you think about symmetry, um, that would mean that everything on the left side and the right side is perfectly the same. So it's a little bit controversial still, uh, but the uh, hypothesis or the idea is that in development, we would all be perfectly symmetrical uh, except for disturbances or problems that happen in development, and they can be minor things. Uh, and so symmetry gives you an indication of the health of an individual, right, genetically. And this tells you a lot about the potential for your offspring to be healthy. So one, one of the reasons why we pay attention to attractiveness and that we care about a lot of these traits is because they give us information that's really important from a biological standpoint on how successful our offspring are going to be. It doesn't necessarily tell us how compatible we're going to be with that mate long term or behaviorally, but genetically and biologically, we're going to make some good kids. And, and that's ultimately what drives that system. That makes a lot of sense. So I started thinking a little bit about smells, right? How do smells come into play here? Oh gosh, I'm a, I'm a big sniffer. Um, so <laughs> smells are really important and we, we tend to not um, think about that for ourselves, um, but smells matter in the sense that we have this uh, system, it's called of, of genes, they're called MHC genes. And this stands for major histocompatibility complex. And what those genes are, are involved in has to do with your um, immunity to diseases. And so we talk about pheromones uh, and people might be familiar with them with other animals. And there's some controversy over whether or not humans have pheromones, but the bottom line is that, you know, uh, I always say, you, you didn't look across the room and fall in love at first sight. It was at first smell. Uh, and so we know that humans and other animals pair up 
preferentially are more attracted to individuals that are the most opposite to them in their MHC genes. And why does this matter? Well, if you're the most opposite, then you have the best combination of genes to provide your offspring with the greatest coverage or spectrum of protection against a variety of diseases. And the really interesting thing is that when women take birth control, it alters their preference. It alters their preference in the sense that they prefer males that are more similar to them in their MHC genes, which leads to some fertility problems, potentially down the line if they go off birth control, or even a lack of attractiveness later um, uh, when they go off of birth control to that particular mate. So, so they date uglier guys? Is that what you're saying? No, no, no. They, they are less attracted. So what you brought up, right, was chemical, like thinking about smells and chemical attraction is incredibly important. So, so what we think about physically, yes, what we see is attractive, but ultimately, if, if we don't like the way somebody smells, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but as a female, I can tell you I've had this experience. Somebody can be a very attractive, symmetrical male and I would say oh boy they're really gorgeous but then if I don't like the way they smell it is irrelevant how good looking you are yeah I I definitely have experienced this it made me think of a few things well one it made me think about smell and how some women that I've been with I like the way they smell more than other women and so that's one variable that made me think about taste and we'll get to that in a second some people people taste differently the other thing I thought about was I've heard some things about this or I've read some things about this that women can smell genetic diversity or we smell genetic diversity and women are more attracted to people who are more genetically diverse. And, and as you talked, started talking about which sets of genes, I guess, they're, they're sort of smelling for. And the example I heard was they took a bunch of people's T-shirts, sweaty T-shirts, and uh, apparently the ones that had the most diversity, women found those the, the most attractive. I, th- I think that was the study. Is that, that sound right? Is, or in the right neighborhood? Yes. And that's the MHC genes that they're smelling for. And But they don't know that they are, right? It, yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, and then the next thing I thought about was, well, that's probably one of the variables that comes into sort of consideration while more animals don't mate with family members. I think I had read that as well. Is that true? Yes. They can tell. Um, so the the our powerful sense of smell extends to being able to um, smell out close rel- smell um, close relatives. So grandparents can tell the T-shirt that belongs to their grandchild infant, even if they've not met them yet. So I think we universally underestimate how powerful smells are to us, and and we don't know what we're detecting. But you're absolutely right. And, and that's rejecting someone that's more similar to you genetically and the ability to discern that based on smell alone is kind of fantastic. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing. I mean, that is absolutely amazing. The example you used of the grandparents is really cool because it would sort of draw a grandparent closer to a grandchild and potentially cause them to have more nurturing. Mm-hmm. Right. So they would they would be attracted to the smell in the sense that 
they knew they're they're genetically close but not physically attracted to them because the advantage of having a diverse gene pool in mates would make somebody more likely to survive genetically am i in the right area you are totally in the right area yeah you're exactly right that's that that's the biological benefit yes it's so awesome i mean a lot oftentimes i think that we at least myself i don't think about these things i just know that somebody smells good or they don't smell good or they taste good or they don't taste i want to ask about taste how does taste come into play in mating well, so I think, and this is just speculation on my part because I'm not entirely sure, but I suspect that taste, there's two things that I would, would say might be going on. One, taste is very closely related to smell, right? Number one. I mean, the, the system of smell and taste kind of go together. So if you lose your sense of smell, many people often lose the ability to taste food um, as well. And so the other thing that, that comes to mind uh, is uh, bacterial. We, we now are uncovering this huge role of microbial bacterial communities and how important they are uh, for us. And there's some work being done uh, with this whole smell thing, going back to the smell thing, but it also plays a role in the taste thing potentially. Um, not that anyone's going around licking armpits, but they're doing armpit and biodiversity um, microbial biodiversity and looking at, um, you know, how that influences the way, how it mixes with our own uh, chemicals that give us sort of our signature scent, if you will. And so it could be also the microbial community that inhabits the body of a person um, gives you uh, a lot of information uh, and mixes with their chemicals and creates whatever that signature smell and taste is for that person. And so there's some research coming out about that and there's some interesting relationships there. But but that's where I would say I'm, I will speculate uh, fairly confidently that that might play a role. I find it re really interesting, and if you hear more, I would love to love to hear more about this. I mean, it makes me think of so many different things as I listen to you. Well, one this, this is sort of a funny story. My first job was in the kitchen when I was like 15 years old, and I'd work in the back. It's a restaurant with a busboy, and then I worked in the kitchen. And I remember one time a waitress walked by, and she goes, "Oh my God, you smell so good. Are you wearing?" And she knew the deodorant I was wearing, and. She goes, my ex-boyfriend used to wear that deodorant and it drove me crazy. And I found that so fascinating because I, I didn't know at the time, but what I assumed was happening is when she was having sex, the deodorant would uh, activate and her head was sort of close to his, ar his armpits and would smell it and, and started creating like a conditioned effect, right? Like as she would get to orgasm, she would smell, smell the deodorant. And that was the first time I ever became aware of how scent affects the people around us right and or i mean i maybe i picked it up when you smell like a someone who smells really bad but from like a sexual perspective and as you talk about these things you talk about symmetry you talk about scent taste is a little bit harder i mean i guess people try to alter taste but what i'm getting into is that it's amazing how much humans try to alter a lot of these things right 
women put perfumes in their hair and and uh, they perfume their body and guys wear cologne and women put on makeup to make their skin quality look better and their face look more symmetric and they buy spanks to give themselves better hip to waist ratio and and uh, heels to make to look taller and that would potentially allow them to attract taller men and and so it's so interesting how much humans are aware of this stuff whether they know it or not and how much they're constantly trying to manipulate it you mentioned size and i know there's a lot of guys listening to this who women listen to this too but a lot of guys listening to this who read men's health or take supplements because they're trying to figure out how to get bigger <laughs> because there is a correlation between at least they think so between size and uh attracting mates do you see these connections or am i just crazy no, no, no. So, so you're bringing up so many wonderful things. I want to kind of unpackage them a, a little bit at a time. And one of them is that your observation that we, we clearly understand these things at some level because we, we work to change uh, or modify what we look like, smell like uh, in an effort to be more attractive and to the opposite sex or the same sex or whatever. Um, but this is something that animals don't do. And so so I just kind of want to make this point that we rely on this information to tell us so many important things that essentially when we artificially alter that, we're deceiving the other partner, the other person on what they're really getting. And so when you mentioned the spanks for greater waist to hip ratio, the reason why men find this attractive, even if they don't know that why, is there is a link between uh, particular waist to hip ratio and fertility and also being able to walk upright right well well no i mean you can walk upright and have no really virtually no waist to hip ratio right um you know some people are kind of wider in the middle and you know than they are uh in their body shape so we have a lot of variation in body shape but i'm sorry there's a sweet spot of a uh, waist to hip ratio that is actually linked to fertility and so when we artificially create that, we're sending a message that we are of a certain quality that we're not. And animals don't have this ability. You know, this, the cardinal, if, if he's being assessed on how red he is, there's no like spray salon for cardinals to go get redder. It's an honest signal. And we needed to be honest signals. And so things like perfume, you know, it's nice to have as sometimes it's fine, but, but, you know, if you're masking what you smell like and a person never gets to actually smell who you are, you know, it, it can lead to uh, all kinds of problems. Plus, who wants to end up, I mean, there have been jokes or skits about this, but, you know, where, where you end up like finally hooking up with somebody and all these fake things come off and you're like, wait, what? Who is actually here? And it's less of a problem. Males, I mean, males get calf implants and, you know, all kinds of, of things now too. Makeup, permanent makeup or, um, hair's you know. Big, hair's a big one hair. for guys. I wish men didn't worry so much about hair. There are, so I wish everyone didn't worry so much. I mean, it's wonderful to be healthy, to strive to improve yourself in whatever way you are uh, uh, trying to. But the reality is, is that, there's so much variation in humans for what we find attractive um, that, you know, I, I, I think I wrote about this in Wild Connection. A friend of mine, she just digs bald guys <laughs> and thinks they're super sexy. 
and uh, others prefer, you know, full head of hair, and some prefer men with big noses. Um, some women don't like men that are really overly muscular because they feel threatened by them. They feel frightened, uh, right, and prefer more slender men. So there's a lot. Well, if you, you look at a men's health or you look at some of these men's fitness magazines and then you look at something like a Cosmo, the body shapes are very different, right? And so one of the things that I've observed is the guy in the men's magazines, guys are always bigger. I think that's because not only do men think that they need to be more muscular um, for, for women than they actually do, uh, but second, I think guys value size because it gives them power within a, a group. So it increases if one guy is bigger and stronger than the other four or five friends, then when it comes to sort of physical aggression, he's able to leverage that and he has more power in the group. That's right. And, and actually you're touching on something that's incredibly important, um, not just for, for us, but for other animals. So most of what drives our behavior is actually competition against the same, you know, we're competing. So what you just said that it, it gives men a sense of power in a group. So women wearing certain clothes, wearing heels, having a certain hairstyle, you know, all of this is driven by sort of cultural and social, um, you know, trends. And most men that I talk to, they don't actually care or really necessarily want a ton of makeup on the face of a, a, a woman. They don't necessarily find that attractive. There is some, there are some men that that like it. And that's fine, but I, I don't. I don't want to speak for men, but at least many of the men I I know, like, why do you guys put all that stuff on your face? You know, <laughs> like, I, take it off. But it, I don't want it on my clothes. It smells funny. You don't even look like you. Um, in fact, an old friend of mine, he was visiting, and I was putting just a minimal amount of makeup, and I was like, I don't look different, right, with makeup on, and he just laughed, <laughs> and I was like, really? he's like, uh, yes. And I thought, oh, okay, that's interesting. So we do it to compete against other females. What are some of the things that when a woman puts on makeup, what is she trying to communicate? Well, so it depends on, on the woman. I can say, uh, like, I might uh, want to, I think I look better with makeup on. Um, maybe my skin complexion is more even. So that might uh, indicate, you know, that might, if I, if I were thinking about it, why would I do that? Well, it might make me look healthier or younger, uh, because those things are tied to our biological health and age, right? <clears throat> age is an indicator of your ability, or, of your fertility. <laughs> so, and obviously your fertility for both men and women declines by 27, 25. Um, and so, I think probably, yeah, uh, and I want other, I, I want to look better than other women so that I could attract more mates. <laughs> I mean, I don't think about that when I'm putting makeup on, but I, why would I be any different than anybody else in doing that? And I, so I think you're right that, that, cause most women are, I mean, there's, again, there's variation, so we can't there's no hard and fast rule for it's a lot easier for a, a cardinal or a peacock. I mean, any male that's got over 150 spots, he's, he's super sexy. <laughs> I mean, and it's not because like the female peahens are counting spots. It just comes back to 
Males that have over 150 spots are more symmetrical. So, you know, there's no getting around that. You can't get additional spots, <laughs> you know, once you are an adult peacock. I mean, you're kind of stuck. Human beings buy cars and buy clothes and, and subscribe to brands and buy expensive houses and upscale neighborhoods. It's it's interesting, all these things that sort of humans do. And, and animals clearly do them in their own way, but they don't have the ability to manipulate and manipulate them in the way humans do. And as a consequence of that, it's really interesting to hear you talk about some of these things. And I think it makes a great point, like the, the process of being yourself and not putting on all this other sort of superficial stuff to manipulate our appearance or projected biology. I can't even think of a, a better word for that. Um, like it, w it would make sense that sends off bad signals, right? You could end up with a partner and when they actually smell you, they're going to be less attracted to you. Right. Well, and, and, you know, I just want to use two more examples to kind of illustrate this. You know, like we don't see elk with fake antlers, right? Like we think about, you know, animals that have to grow antlers. They're made of bone. And so this is an extraordinarily expensive thing to do <laughs> physically, you know, to every year regrow these giant antlers that are made of bone if you're an elk. And so if you could cheat, right? And just get, make them hollow. Why, why don't we see that? And the reason we don't see that is because the way that it works for elk is that females watch the fights between bulls and they, they pick the winner. <laughs> always, they go with the winner. And so if you are an elk who's trying to kind of skirt the process and you, you somehow manage to get hollow uh, antlers, you will lose. You, not only that, you might die, um, since sometimes they die anyway. Uh, you will lose the fight and you won't get the female. So cheating is, there's a built-in mechanism to prevent cheaters. There's one exception that I found, and I didn't find it before I finished writing the book. I was, uh, I, I searched and searched. Are there any animals that are deceptive, right? That do the thing like that we do, and there, there, there is, and there's probably more than one. But the one I found was the the long-tailed dance fly, <laughs> and it's a little fly, and males prefer larger females um, because larger females can lay more eggs. And so since they only really mate once, uh, they, they give females a gift of, uh, it's called a spermatophore in some species. And it's basically a big glob of protein. And the males might give over 30% of their body weight in protein to the female as a gift. So they want to make sure they give it to a, a good female like the best female um, and because it's expensive <laughs> and and so they prefer larger females well some females swallow air <laughs> to make their themselves look bigger than they really are because they want the expensive meal right they, they this is good any female that can get more food is going to do great and so they swallow air which makes their abdomen swell up and it makes them um, appear to be larger than they really are and it fools the males into giving them the gift. 
So there, there, we, have, we have a similarity in our deceptiveness with the long-tailed dance fly. I feel like birds do this, right? Aren't, aren't there birds that puff? Uh, and oh. I mean, guys, guys definitely do this in the club. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yes, but puffing up um, either in a courtship ritual or puffing up against another male is different than um, – so, so for birds – it depends, right? The traits, uh, if we kind of go back to where we, uh, where we started, uh, it could be the color um, of the feathers because males that have more parasites are going to have duller colors or uh, males that aren't so good at finding food that gives them the coloration are going to be duller in appearance. But let's say you've got two brilliantly colored males. They're both really symmetrical. Now what? Well, usually in birds, the male also has to dance or do some other, um, to bring us back to the club, uh, do some other kind of, you know, routine or courtship uh, on top of looking good. So looking good is just the first pass. And then once you look good, now you've got to a lot of times do more. And that's true for females too, you know. What's interesting because humans do all these things, right? Like humans sing. Like there's some set of the population that sings and uses that to attract mates. There's some that get really good at dancing. I had a buddy of mine growing up and he was a really good break dancer. We, we would go to another high school and he would dance during their lunchtime shows and he'd get like 30 to 50 phone numbers. Girls would just walk up and hand him his phone number and he would, at the end of the day, he'd pull them out. I had never seen anything like it. He didn't know who any of these girls were because it was just names and phone numbers and like call me. And, but guys dance, right? They, uh, I mean, women do the, this as well, but it's so fascinating because there's so many different behaviors that we see in animals that humans, not every human does that thing, but there are lots of humans who do that and have taken that strategy and made it effective at attracting mates. Absolutely. And some, right. And, and, you know, I, it's funny that you said this about your friend. So I was sort of an the honorary female member of a B-boys group in Raleigh <laughs> and we'd go out dancing every weekend. I never got 30 to 50 numbers, but these four gentlemen did very well. And, uh, it was kind of interesting because for me, I got the protection of four males and it's probably why I never got a phone number because I was surrounded by four males um and you know males generally don't approach females that are with other males is this also true in the animal kingdom well so in the animal kingdom yes and no it depends on the species so some males uh will try to steal females right uh so you think about one of my favorite animals are, are gorillas. So silverbacks, they've got a group of females and um, other males. The only way for another male to get a female is either steal one or uh, she comes willingly <laughs> with him. So you do get uh, males that try to steal a female and will end up in conflicts with other males and they will fight uh, and Depending on the outcome, you know, they might win the female or, or they might not. You also have males that will try to just steal the female, like kidnap them. So um, away from another male. And, and so that happens. So, yeah, it, you, you 
but but a male has to be pretty confident about his ability to win a fight in order to take that strategy and animals other animals more so than i think humans are really better at assessing where they really stand <laughs> in terms of their competitive ability um, but you also have like beta males these are the ones that are act as the friend are more you know aren't the fighters or and then you have sneaker males which just kind of fly under the radar and use that as a strategy so it made me laugh I, I was thinking about a guy who I went to junior high school with he was on my football team when I was a little kid and he went on to become a pro athlete and even in, uh, in the NBA he even was like all pro and I had read about I saw him on a golf course several years ago but the last time I decided to look him up he had gotten in trouble for apparently he had hooked up with somebody and they were married and the husband came home and he had to jump out the window. <laughs> and, and I, I, it made me laugh and I thought about how much he's changed over the years because he was so conservative. But it takes a certain amount of audacity in order even to be a sneaky male, right? And, That's right. And uh, a lot of guys will avoid it, avoid doing that because it's not worth the risk. I mean, in his case, like it, when he didn't want to fight his way out of the house, he jumped out of the out of the window <laughs> and ended well, up right. in the paper ended up in papers like international newspapers <laughs> oh my gosh that's funny but you're absolutely right it's not worth the risk and so so there is a risk assessment when it comes to mating and competition you know there there is a certain element of risk and females compete you know most males most human males would agree that female competition in some ways is less direct and much more like aggressive than than male competition like males kind of like yeah you could probably beat me all right it's cool you you take her you know <laughs> it's fine there's another one women uh tend to be much more manipulative much more aggressive in a broader spectrum not even necessarily physically aggressive but socially aggressive they their strategy is to ruin the reputation of another female which is why women say other women are sluts that's correct. Because in reality, you know, a male may want to be willing to have sex with a slut, but he's not necessarily going to want to marry her. I've experienced that oftentimes guys will, if there's two women and they're about equally attracted to both of them, they will choose the path of least resistance. Right. Right. That, that's sort of my, and so it's essentially psychological warfare, right? Yes. And it's so, so that's how, you know, women do it. And, and it's interesting because I, I can't speak for other women and what their response is, but let's say I'm in, uh, it's me and another female and I like this male and I can see that she does. I, I might, you know, just not put myself out there as, as strongly if I see that she's either, um, you know, taking a strategy of being overly affectionate and overly friendly and just kind of over the top with the guy, then I'm, I'm just like, okay, never mind. This, I just, <laughs> just go away. So it's sort of a, a similar response because I don't like to engage in um, competition directly for, for uh, affections or attentions of males. That's just my approach. Going back to sort of animalistic behaviors, I think about, sort of hierarchy and, and behaviors, right? Because um, whoever has sort of the most status in the group 
um, or who's going to have the most power. And regardless of why that is, you're in a dance class and you're the teacher or you own the studio or you're the best dancer or you're, you're hanging out with a bunch of friends and everyone's singing and you can sing the most in key, right? You have the best voice or maybe you're the biggest, strongest guy. Or for women, maybe it's you're the most beautiful or maybe it's you, you come from the wealthiest family or you have the most followers on Instagram or YouTube or some social social site. I think you're right. It affects the behavior of the other people in the group, right? Because it's like the leader is sort of like the social glue for the group. And to a certain extent, people want the validation of that that person or it appears that in my observation that people want the validation of that person and so what that seems to do is it causes the other members of the group to be more conservative and the person who has the most power oftentimes to have the most range of behaviors or be most aggressive and i don't mean in like an angry aggressive way but they're more likely to go after the girl or the boy um, or the the boy or the girl that they want and not worry about what everybody else thinks. And I think that's sort of what you're talking about. Yes. And so, uh, you know, an animal species that comes to mind to, to also illustrate this is when you were talking, I kept thinking about prairie chickens um, <laughs> or sage grouse. So uh, because what you said also implies a level of copying, right? So, if it alters the, it depends, like w with your friend who got the 30 to 50 numbers, you know, female after female or male after male is going to go for the same individual. And, and so this is exactly what happens in a lot of species, but in prairie chickens, let's say you're the best dancer because they dance for, for the females. Males get their little territories and they, they stomp and do their display and they do it continuously for like a month. So you got to have a lot of stamina to get through this. And uh, like one or two males get most of the females. And it's because females will copy the other females. Uh, and, and part of this is also that you don't have to make your own decisions, right? So kind of circle back, like where men may not want a, a woman that's already attached and, and it's not worth the risk. Many men who are already attached and are married or have a partner get hit on more than single men. And this is part of that phenomenon of you already have status. Somebody already decided that you were a good quality mate. Therefore, I'm going to want to mate with you too. It's like seeing someone has a bunch of followers on social media and deciding to follow them as well, sort of. Exactly. Except taking it to the level of, of, of mating. <laughs> Well, ex exactly. Um, well, I guess what I'm getting at is that we seem to use social cues as uh, indicators on what we should do, right? So a bunch of women are attracted in to one guy. So what you're saying is other women will assume that they should be attracted to or will actually become attracted because of these social indicators. Yes. And we see this mate copying in, in other species. Yes. It's uh, very common. And it's a strategy. <laughs> Yeah, so you're saying it makes things simpler because you don't have to think as much. Yes. Uh, so, you know, um, it happens in fruit bats. You know, they uh, they honk. And, <laughs> the, the, and the wingmen get a little bit of the leftovers, incidentally. So it's very similar, right? Uh, if you've ever spent any time around celebrities, they usually have a cluster 
if they're male, they have a cluster of males that, you know, use their proximity to a popular male to try to pick up extra matings, right? <laughs> and we see this in fruit bats. We see it in elephant seals. We see it in prairie chickens. And we see it in humans. Yeah, I, I was thinking about the idea of entourages, right? So entourage and celebrity, or even in New York City, there's like this really elite club scene where guys run around and they basically chase down models. They bring the models into these clubs so that celebrities can meet them and hook up with them. And you get people in there like Leonardo DiCaprio or Gerard Butler was hanging out in that scene for a while. And uh, they were just hooking up with sort of young. If you're watching a, some gossip TV show or reading some gossip magazine about the next person Leonardo DiCaprio is hooking up with and she's some young model, it's a good chance he met her at one of these clubs in New York City where essentially these guys are like I think of like uh, the king and what are the courtesans or whatever. These guys just go out. They find attractive women. Sometimes they date them. But right. in the end, they oftentimes get ditched for the king. <laughs> of course. Of <laughs> and, I, and, course. <laughs> and I've had guys frustrated about this. I met this guy who was a promoter in one of that four or five small groups. There's like four or five teams of guys who do this in, in New York City and like the one of the most elite club scenes in the world. One time someone tried to get me to do this. They offered to to sort of join a crew. You'd make a lot of money. I could hop on a plane, fly to Con, fly to Vegas. Like he's like, you just round up the girls. We could fly around the world. But when we did that, oftentimes you you have to do that to bring them to like super rich guys who are paying for these private jets, right? And so, but it's really interesting. It's the same same idea um, as what you're talking about, I, I, or at least I see a correlation. Yeah, oh, yes, absolutely. And in fact, you know, uh, in the Azuki bean beetle, <laughs> females will trade up. In other species as well, right? So a lot. What's what's interesting is that in humans, we will females will mate with these. Let's call them, you know, side males, um, <laughs> in an effort to get closer to the king, as you put it, right? So so they manipulate the situation. They're willing to mate with a lower quality male, so that they can hopefully get access to the higher quality male. And I'm not talking about people as quality as, as human beings, right? And whether they're a good person or not. Or just, <laughs> but the, the Azuki bean beetle, which, um, you know, is a tiny little beetle, the female will go ahead and, you know, all right, I'll mate with you. But as soon as I encounter a higher quality male, I'm ditching you and trading up. Um, and so we, we do this uh, in humans, uh, whether it's in this scenario of celebrity you know, kingdoms or in regular life, uh, you know, females often will trade up. They No one trades down. This is so funny. I was at dinner the other night with a bunch of Harvard Business School graduates. All of them work in finance. I was the only one who didn't work in finance. And one of the guys made the comment, he goes, yeah, you should marry. I've heard you should marry three times. And I can't remember exactly what the three things were. I think the first one was the first time for wealth. The second time, I think he said for status, and he goes the third time for looks. Yeah, wow. <laughs> and I, 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 yeah. I, I thought but, I was shocked to hear that, but it goes along the lines of what you're saying. Yeah, and so and and, and these things, you know, apply. Then I think women could say the same thing, except you know, uh, and and looks matter less to um, women than status, unless. Uh, women already have 
wealth. And then they revert to looks matter more. But intelligence, so when we were talking about traits, you know, these traits aren't necessarily apparent uh, um, just based on physical appearance. So we investigate further and you find what's compatible. Obviously, it depends on what your, your goals are. But intelligence and status would be the most critical. And then later, if you have your own status or your own money already, then you go back to looks or, you know, uh, kindness or other sort of traits. But personality matters in other species, too. So uh, your compatibility, your ability to uh, work together, solve problems, um, you know, similarity. We always say opposites attract, but usually not so much. Uh, the, there's pretty good evidence in humans and in other species that that similarity is, except for genes, is actually more appealing. Can you give us some examples of that? Sure. So um, great tits are these birds that um, are, are found, you know, they're pretty common all over Europe. And they're a great, they've been used a lot as a, what we call a model system. So something that we can look at a variety of things um, pretty easily. And so they've been looked at for personality and, um, and ultimately somebody did some research to see if individuals with certain personalities preferentially mate with individuals of other certain personalities. And it turns out if you are an explorer, great tit, meaning you just, you're bold, you kind of like to try new things, you push the boundaries, uh, you, you prefer a mate who's the same. If you're sort of a stay-at-home couch potato type of uh, great tit, then you prefer, you do better when you pair up with a mate that is similar to you. And this can also extend to sexual compatibility. So it's a make or break deal for cockatiels. If you are not compatible in a sexual way, they will divorce and find a new cockatiel. <laughs> Usually they find a new cockatiel first and then they divorce. <laughs> It's so awesome hearing you talk about these things because I think about all the human connections, right? I, I think about Andre Agassi marrying a model. Who is he married to the first the first marriage? Brooke Shields or somebody. And then he went back and then he ended up marrying another tennis star in that relationship. I think they're married. But that one seemed to last a lot longer. Uh, finding somebody who has had the same interests uh, as, as him. Uh, I think about people who pick people who are have similar backgrounds or similar narratives or ethnicities or I'm not suggesting someone do any of these things. I'm just, it appears that humans, they feel more comfortable when people are like them or, or and there is a sort of level of compatibility to a certain extent. So that's right. And, and to, it depends on what somebody's looking for, what things they prefer might be similar. Some, it might, you know, you decide what's important to you. So what's important to you might be interests, it might be background, it might be educational level, it might be uh, social status, it might be um, if you are from a village in, I think it was in, in Senegal, I'm not sure, they did some research in married couples that were the most successful were more similar to each other on generosity, <laughs> right? And, and so, and cooperation. And so we make these decisions, they can change over time. I think that's something that's potentially, you know, interesting is that when you're younger, maybe you think social status or educational level is the real important thing. And, and, and most dating coaches, right, tell you to make a list of what's important to you, right? 
and 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 what are you looking for in a mate? And and so I think that that's that and that can change over time, and it also changes over time for females and other species. Uh, so bowerbirds, satin bowerbirds, are these fantastic birds, and they build the males build these elaborate structures. Um, and they decorate them and then they dance in them. So how is this not amazing? And so all to impress the female, older females make better choices than younger females, meaning they, they end up being <laughs> more selective on, on, you know, on the dancing and, uh, that give them more information about the, the quality sort of like everybody can have a fancy house and decorate it well but how can you really dance like that's really going to tell me and so you know females are very choosy and they they get smarter or choosier if you will um as they get older um potentially because they've made mistakes and so this can happen also for uh for males you know uh, and and males are picky too in other species i, I don't want to make it seem like it's only females that are driving choice. Males are incredibly picky, especially if they're going to give resources. And if they have options. Correct. Right? The more, option, <laughs> the more options, the more choosier you have to be. Absolutely. There's a Bruno Mars song and one of the lines is, if you only have one carrot and they all have to share it. But the truth is, <laughs> <laughs> if, the truth is, I mean, you can't physically reproduce with more than one person at a time. But yeah, I think this is so interesting. I can, um, as you're talking about this, I imagine like the girl in her late teens, early twenties, who's just odd because some guy has a nice car, or a big house, or he's throwing a huge party. The Great Gatsby. He's like, uh, I mean, that's a little bit of a different sort of narrative. But the idea of someone throws a big house, they get excited, and uh, and that's enough. And you get smarter, and you go, well, I don't know. I had a, I remember talking to a matchmaker, and she was saying, she goes, I won't work with male models. And, and I said, why is that? And she goes, because they always cheat. So I ended up with unhappy clients. So although women might be attracted to them, like I, I won't work with them because they tend to stray and I end up with unhappy, unhappy clients versus finding men who women might find attractive, but also are going to have less options <laughs> based on physical appearance. But yeah, this is so fascinating to hear you talk about all these things. I, I started thinking about a few questions back uh, about women and female choice. And I think that was a really interesting point to bring up or that you brought up, which is that women will select based on sort of status and these other variables unless they have it. And then if, if they have resources, then what are they called where the, the older women who have money go back and they, they find boy toys? Oh, oh, they call them cougars. Cougars. Which is so insulting. <laughs> but but, it, but it's, it's interesting because years ago, I actually was talking to a journalist about this very subject. Oh, she was saying, well, men are attracted based on looks and women are tra attracted based on status. And I said, I don't think that's true. And that was the prevailing thought in like every book that I read at the time and every book that she had read. And I said, I don't think that's true. And all we have to do is look at older women selecting younger men. I, I think what, in my observation, people are attracted to things that they perceive as being valuable based on their sort of needs and values. And when I say needs, it could be biological or it could be uh, resource needs. When I talk about values, I think culture and conditioning affect what we perceive as being valuable. Going back to this example you used of the 
of the mirroring behavior where everyone values that this person can sing or this person can dance or this person's funny. And as a consequence, they use those indicators to become more attracted. Are you saying that you see a very similar pattern? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, it's pretty, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that we've been conditioned to believe things are one way, but, but the reality is when you really look at what people are doing, um, you bring up an excellent point. It's it always, I mean, in the French have perfected older women and younger men. This is just a requirement to be French. And so it's a relatively recent kind of phenomenon in, in, the, in the sense that more widespread in our culture, right? Because now we have a name for it, but, but it's always been there. Um, but now it's becoming a really, I can tell you as a, you know, I'm not old, but an, I'm not 20, for the last 10 years, I've had some young men, they can only be called boys, really, where it seems like it's sort of now a status thing for young males in, 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 to hook up with an older woman. Well, yeah, I definitely, know, <laughs> I, I definitely know men like that. I've had a lot of guys tell me I'm attracted to older women and they're attracted to, I mean, there's physical attraction, but there's also, it's also the status and power and the intelligence and all the sort of experience. There's all these other variables that come into play. So I think it's so interesting that you bring this up. Yes. And, and so this is where we go back to that sort of what are the things that matter? What is the compatibility? So if you are a younger male and you're really looking for somebody who's, you know, got their quote unquote life together in some way that you can perceive is intelligent, is maybe more emotionally mature, is more experienced, um, this can be very appealing and attractive to you in a certain time frame where you may be not interested in getting married and, and settling down and having kids, right? Um, or you're working on your career, your own status. So you, it takes a tremendous amount of effort to part, make a partnership work. Uh, so each party makes up on a biological level, I guess, their own sacrifices, right? So women are dating guys who are at the peak of their fertility uh, and where they might be at the end or past, the, past their point of fertility. And they have to deal with the, the man child, the guy who is still developing, but they get some increased level of status and they feel uh, sexually validated and feel attractive because they have stolen a sort of an attractive mate from the younger gene pool. And the guy is giving up maybe fertility during that time, but he acquires sort of the status and the emotional stability during the come up, I guess. On both sides, I can see that with young women and young men during sort of the, the stage of their life where they're trying to acquire status, power, hierarchy, as we'd call it in the animal kingdom. It can be an effective strategy to, to be drawn to and take on a mate who's already acquired the things that you want. Absolutely. And animals do this, other animals do this all the time. I mean, and in fact, it's interesting that I'm trying to, I was trying to remember, and I think it's chimpanzees, the males prefer older females. <laughs> and because the females are not so frightened of them, <laughs> young female chimps, when it, when it, like for, so female chimps get a huge swelling when they're receptive. Like, you know, their whole back end just swells up. 
and it gets really large. And this is very attractive to all the males who are of reproductive age <laughs> in chimpanzees and even some youngsters that are just exploring. And so for a female, a young female who's gotten her first sexual swelling is what we call it, it's very intimidating to have 20 males nose to nose following you everywhere you go. <laughs> and so they get scared, they get frightened. It, it's, it's a mess. So the, the males actually prefer older females because the older females are, they're just experienced and they're not frightened by all of the attention <laughs> that they're getting, if that makes sense. Dating coach Chris Luna here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, listen to this entire podcast and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchristmas.com create an account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community, and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible, check out our live coaching programs on our website. Craft Charisma Live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows? Attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. That is so funny. I remember being in a club one time and I was coaching for a guy who later became a coach for us. And he asked me, he goes, hey, can you can you wing me for a little bit? I want to talk to these girls. And so he starts talking to one girl. I talked to the friend. I asked the friend if she wants to get a drink. What I'm really trying to do is move her away from the other two so that they can be alone so that both will relax. Because one of the things I've observed is, is when two people are together, they're constantly looking at each other uh, to see what they should do next. And so I was attempting to move her into the other room so that both parties would relax if they liked each other. They're both in a safe environment, right? They're in a bar, there's bouncers, there's other people around. And I went to the bar, we ordered a drink, and then the friend runs over uh, after about four or five minutes and she's really excited and she says something and then the two girls start off and I look at the guy that I was helping with and I'm like, it's so weird, they're acting like they're 19. And he goes, they are 19. <laughs> and and I was like, how did they get in here? But what I was picking up was the behavior, right? So it's the overstimulation of all the different things that were happening, all the guys, people in close proximity, things people are wearing, all these just all these new experiences. But also there's sort of like this nervous energy that comes with being in these situations where people are not familiar. And these were some of the things that I was picking up and I attribute to their age and I guess their age correctly versus a woman who has been in that environment. It's not her first time in a bar. She didn't get a fake ID and sneak in. Uh, she's been coming in there for coming into bars for 10, 15 years. She's at, let's say that she is in her thirties or mid thirties or early forties. Those things are not new. They're not, they're not overstimulating. 
it, they're not going to have the same type of effect as somebody who's experiencing it for the first time. And so you get this sort of calmness where I've had guys say, yeah, I like dating older women because they know what they want. They're much more direct. Uh, they're not jittery in the way these girls that I described where their attention isn't always shifting around. They sort of, I can just relax and be myself and everybody's on the same page. Um, and, and as you described that example, I thought of that experience and I also thought of just the idea of, and I know it's hard if you're a woman listening to this, women have a, a unique challenge. They have to figure out how do you attract a guy into your life and then how do you screen them out? But guys walking around, or sorry, women walking around New York City, they're dressed in a way that shows off their features that are going to attract men, but then they have 20 males following them around on the street, maybe not literally, but making comments on on the street and it becomes overwhelming and they become frustrated. And they end up making YouTubes about it and go viral because there's a million other women who are frustrated by the same experience. And so um, I sort of heard some of the same sort of psychological underpinnings that you were talking about. I saw them in these examples. Do you see the connection? I do. I do. And it's an interesting, you know, there's there's a few really wonderful points that you brought up there. Um, there's always trade-offs, right? So. Uh, an older female may be more relaxed in certain environments or more familiar with the process that's happening, but she's also going to be less overwhelmed by smaller gestures. <laughs> you know, like meaning it takes a lot more effort to convince an older female <laughs> to mate with you um, than, you know, uh, or an experienced female than an than a inexperienced female because they've seen it all before and heard it all before and it's like, well, why should I keep talking to you exactly? You know, that can, that can happen for similar aged people. So that's also why it might be a, it works, you know, with the age disparities that we see in certain developmental periods because, you know, a, uh, an older female or an experienced female might find it refreshing that a younger male is paying attention to her, right? Or uh, courting her in, in a certain way, if you will. And so, you know, that's, that's one aspect there. And the other one that you brought up, which is really interesting, there's this trade-off and this kind of social versus mating happening where we do, we dress to, show off our features, attract mates, but then we feel violated in some way when anyone other than who we would like to comment or compliment or pursue us does so. It's a challenge. I have a, a woman who is in my dating mastery class, the, the one that just ended a uh, several week program where we coach people and we, we brought up this exact subject and she because you're right. I never realized that. But it's a challenge. And I, as a, as a coach and as a guy, I am very sympathetic, right? You have to figure out how do I attract somebody? But then when you attract somebody, how do you screen out that attention? And uh, one of the things I have to tell, especially with some of the social movements that are happening to our clients, we, we talk about this because there's a lot of guys who are completely scared uh, to approach at all. And I said, well, look, women still want guys to approach. <laughs> like a woman gets dressed up and nobody approaches her at all when she wants to be approached, um, she might get frustrated, especially if it's a guy that she likes. Um, but they have a unique set of problems. They, they have to figure out how to, how do you attract somebody into your life, but screen out all these guys that she's not interested in. 
And for the guys, I, I have to teach them how do you read these subtle cues and, so that you can make sure that a woman always feels comfortable and also understand when she says no, you have to move on. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's so, it's so fascinating that you bring this up because, you know, in the animal king, in the other animals, I always try to remember to say that because humans are animals, um, you know, in other animals and in humans, it's almost always the female that gives the signal it's okay, right? And so, <clears throat> um, and I think it also depends on the intention. So are you, are you kind of trying to hook up or are you trying to actually date? There are different cues and different behaviors. So, so men or males who are approaching a female, is it to form a partnership? Are you looking for a partnership or are you looking to hook up? Because if you approach a, a potential mate as if you're trying to hook up, but you claim your intention is for uh, dating and a relationship, that's a mixed signal. That's, there's confusion there and it, it won't work. If I'm out there looking for a partner and I'm approached by a male in a way that is indicative of he's a squirrel just trying to get a nut then I'm not interested. Well, it's interesting that you brought that up because it, I think it connects back to some of the earlier things we talked about. You were talking about how women will screen out gestures, uh, like sort of superficial gestures. And I feel like that is more true as women age. So when someone's younger, you talk, I think you mentioned them as gifts. Younger women will pick up more superficial things and res oftentimes respond more to them. Whereas women age, I feel like, and I think men are the same way. I know that I am definitely like this. As I've gotten older, I might still be attracted to somebody who is younger, right? But I talk to them and I, the superficial things do not have the same effect on me because I've touched the, the pan a few times. I burnt myself and I'm like, uh, I don't know. And so then I end up with a more in-depth screening process. So as I've aged, I have a more in-depth screening process. And I think what you're describing are is women go through a similar process and maybe anim and animals go through a similar process. Absolutely. If you're, if you're trying to form a long-term partnership, right? Because the costs are high because the investment is high because it's very difficult to maintain a, uh, a relationship uh, over the long term. It takes a tremendous amount of effort and focus and time and resources that, you know, uh, so, so you should be, uh, having a screening process that goes beyond attractiveness. And it's hard to maintain that the, the, the cues or the behaviors that go along with forming an actual relationship are hard to maintain falsely over say a period of three to six months. And so, uh, or even sometimes three weeks, it depends <laughs> on the person. Um, now, some people are very good at deceiving other people about their true intentions, right? And, and I've never understood this because there are plenty of people, male and female, that are happy to just have casual sex, casual encounters, uh, and, and so there's no need really to deceive someone who's very clear about wanting a relationship just to have sex with them. That doesn't ever make sense to me. And so um, I think that 
that as you get older, if you're if you shift and your intention now is to have relationship, your your screening process, as you mentioned, absolutely gets you know uh, you have more filters that and and you're paying more attention uh, because you're you understand how how much of an investment it is to really engage another person at that level. And we see this in in other species. So albatross are one of my favorite examples. They date for like four years <laughs> when they're teenagers. <laughs> and, um, because, and, and they spend that time uh, developing their own language um, so that, that just the, the pair understand what the other's saying. And we see this in humans, right, who've been together for a while. They have It can be annoying if you're in the social group around these people because you're like, what are you laughing about? Oh, it's an inside joke. Okay, well, you're in an outside place. <laughs> Can you share it with all of us? And so, um, you know, but but albatrosses do this, and then they they spend a tremendous amount of time in their courtship. They sky call, which is they they put their heads up and they yammer to each other back and forth, and they they perfect this over over four years, and then they finally that's it. They they mate, and it's uh, for life. Now. About seven percent of albatrosses will divorce, and, and, but they've they've spent all this time because it's a it's they need to rely on that uh, partner for the success of of their their chicks that they have because they require one to leave, collect food very far off, come back, and so you've got to have a reliable mate that can cooperate, and and you've got to be able to communicate with each other about your current status physically or you know energetically so that the other one can make an adjustment <clears throat> and so if your intention is to have a relationship and you don't implement a, a really strong screening process on a variety of things that go much deeper than whether or not you're attractive uh, attracted to them which of course you need to be but if that's your only benchmark you're in trouble for a long-term relationship yeah, this is so interesting. I feel like it's only through, I mean, some people use religion or culture in order to have a more sophisticated screening process early on. Or I know some cultures use arranged marriage where the family screens the person. But in Western culture, it's hard. You have to develop this process of, of, of assessing another person for these more sophisticated variables. And you sort of have to do it through trial and error. Right, we we gain those experiences and we learn from our experiences, and sometimes those those experiences cause us to screen for things that really aren't that important. But some things are because we misunderstand them, or I, I, it's really interesting to hear you talk about uh, this process of screening, and and I just keep thinking about how it just takes time to sort of develop, and as I told clients, figure out what it is that you want. You're only going to get that through experience to a certain extent, unless you have, you're using some type of other sort of mechanism for assessment. Absolutely. And, and, and one of the things I like to do now, cause I, you know, when you think about through past, you know, unfortunate experience, I learned that the ability to work together in under duress and cooperate, <laughs> whether it's because you're lost and you need to find directions, how many fights happen in vehicles <laughs> with people uh, with couples or putting together Ikea furniture. I mean, it actually can lead to huge fights and arguments and bad feelings. So I 
before I would even get serious with someone, I would now find some way to do a cooperative task. I want to know how do you behave when things aren't going well. Uh, I want to know how adaptable you are. I want to know how easily you get frustrated, angry um, versus, you know, problem solving and communicating. How do you communicate when you're under stress? You know, what, what is, until you know those things, it's very, very difficult to assess your compatibility. And I think that we spend so much time in our culture on the, on the superficial courtship, um, like, okay, well, you've taken me to dinners and you've taken me to the movies and you've taken me to do this. And we've done these things once a week for the last three months. I know Thing, enough about you to make a decision that that we're going to pursue a lifelong partnership. Um, you've got to spend a lot of time together, not just when you start, but but once you're in it, you've got to spend a lot of time together. And and if you're the best dates are the dates where stuff goes wrong, because now you're really going to see right away. <laughs> You know, if I have a bad date, I'm I'm like, oh, thank goodness, I, I figured it out on date one. I didn't need to spend three months of my life <laughs> spending time with this person, only to find out that when 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 something doesn't work uh, properly or when they get frustrated, they scream and throw things. You know, I was thinking about this my own scream process, and one of the things as I've gotten older, I have started. I've noticed I've started doing is I. I'm less likely to go out to dinners and do, I don't like to do any of that when I first start dating. And that's something that I generally reserve for somebody that I am dating or I'm in a relationship. And it makes me think of the fly example where he gives 30% of his fat. There's when I was a young man, I would take my entire check and I would take somebody to dinner. And now as I get older, I'm like, that's crazy. And even though dinner is not going to take my entire check now, the whole process just seems insane. I would rather get to know somebody. And part of the screening process for me is seeing whether somebody is comfortable doing everyday stuff when we first start dating. And once I feel safe in that way, then I will start to invest more both emotionally and financially. Like I'll, I'll invest more resources into the relationship. But it's interesting for me I was the the fly giving 30% of my fat as a young guy saying like, here, why don't you accept me? And then the girl goes, well, you re well, you realize as a guy like that's not really a great strategy because what happens is there's always guys who they can give one, 2% of their fat in the fly example, but they're so much bigger. They have so many more resources. You'll never be able to compete. So there's no point in attempting to keep on that. So what you do is you try to figure out what I've learned and what I try to teach people is how you compete on the things that make you, you, right? And they're already within your capacity. You like to draw, well, that's, and you're good at drawing. That's part of the way you can, you like to play piano. That's something that someone who likes piano is going to find attractive, right? Maybe their dad played piano or brother, or they always wanted to learn. You went and you did, you studied a lot in school. Let's say you went to like an elite school. Somebody always wanted to go to an elite school. They find that valuable or they went to one as well and they put in years of life. So it's like, oftentimes I tell, I tell our clients that, I think the best advice is to be yourself and people say that, but they don't understand what that means. And I say, when I be yourself, I mean like you sell what you have and you can constantly develop yourself. But uh, when you're being yourself, 
and truly expressing yourself. You used the example of cheating earlier, trying to cheat the system, right? You show that you have more wealth than you have, and then that allows you to mate temporarily, and uh, but it doesn't allow you to retain the person um, because once they have spent all your money on dinners and drinks, <laughs> <laughs> they're going to move on to the next guy who actually has more resources, who can spend more money on food or drinks. And so you have to figure out what it is that you offer. And it sounds like in the animal kingdom that there's like this strategy also holds up. Yeah. So it's interesting because, well, and you know, we've been so conditioned. It requires a tremendous amount of creativity. If you're not going to automatically take somebody out to dinner on the first date, what are you going to do? Right? So what is the, <clears throat> what are the behaviors? What are the activities? Cause you have to do something. Um, and you know, and so what is it? But we've been so conditioned that if a man isn't taking you out to dinner and paying for it, you don't talk to him anymore. Um, or you don't, he's not a high quality male. So in the, in, in other species, it varies. Sometimes it is about, I mean, it's almost always about resources of some kind. So for example, some males will build a nest for, uh, I forget the species, but he'll build a nest. If he, if he's particularly good at building a nest, she thinks he's a good male, right? If he builds a nest with a big hole in it, mm, not so much. So it's construction of something like the bower bird. He doesn't actually give the female anything. He builds something and he decorates it. So he's, you know, showing off his skills and then he dances. The, um, there's the uh, fairy wren. They bring a flower and then they dance, you know, so there's some expenditure of resources. So in following kind of what you were saying with, you know, you don't invest the financial or emotional resources, but it might be the creativity. It might be some, you've got to share some aspect of you um, that, that will be of value to a person. And if you want a partner who's not going to just value you for what you can pay for um, or these superficial things, then it requires a, a resource in the sense that a creativity to, to set up situations or create dates that allow for that expression i'm not opposed if if i'm out eating with someone picking up the tab and uh <laughs> and i think that there i definitely met women who will screen on that they're like well he didn't pay for dinner i won't go out with him again and i know this is important to a lot of women um but i also i had a, a long-term relationship that started our first date was a, a yoga studio we went to yoga afterwards we ended up we went for a walk we decided we were going to pop into a movie. The movie theater was closed, so we went to a coffee shop. She ended up needing a place to use internet. I told her she could use my place. I took her to my place. I actually left her at my place <laughs> alone. And I and I and and I know as a dating coach, I'm like, well, what's the worst that's going to happen? She's going to steal something. Probably not. Um, but if she feels comfortable in my space, then she's more likely to see me again. And so. At, at any rate, she just hung out. Who knows what she did? Looked at the books in my bookshelf. Maybe looked at photos. I didn't even, I didn't even worry about it. I know it's such an abnormal thing for most people to do, but I knew my place looked nice and it was, uh, it was clean and whatever. And I just didn't think she needed internet. It sort of made sense. I didn't really, wasn't that worried about it. So then I, I went and ran errands. I came back and she's like, I got to go. And I said, cool. Well, it was nice to meet you. We kissed for the first time and then we ended up having sex. <laughs> and and <laughs> later on, later on, we dated for two and a half, three years. 
and uh, it's funny. And the second date, we ended up, I had to do errands. And it wasn't, I said, well, I can't really, I don't have time to go to dinner. I got to run some errands. You can come with me. And she goes, sure. And so then I end up renting a car while we were uh, on our way to go to Home Depot or something. We stopped by this place called the Donut Plant. I got like six different types of donuts. We tried the different donuts and talked about them while we we're driving. And she's like, oh my God, your dates are so much fun. They're I like, know. everyone is so different. I'm not surprised it's like, ended up with sex at the end of the first one. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really, really funny, right? And so right. the second date, yeah, that, that was sort of what happened. We were, um, like, we, were, we went to the donut plant, picked up different donuts, tried, it was like creativity. And what I was trying to do is sort of just bring her into my life. And the reason why I have this mentality is I'm not a billionaire. I'm an entrepreneur. And for me, building businesses at this stage of my life is more important. And so I can go out and spend hundreds of dollars or take somebody on a trip and spend thousands of dollars, or I can reinvest them back in my business. And so part of that is a communication issue. I just communicate to the person that I'm interacting with, like, this is, these are my boundaries and this is what I'm, I'm looking for. And this is where I'm at at this stage of my life. And it allows people to screen, screen themselves out. I found that this is a, a very important strategy for me. Um, and I find that if you're listening to this and you're like a student, for example, you don't need to compete against some guy who's already finished school and has a career and has a bunch of money. You just have to be yourself and figure out what it is that you have to sell or to offer and, and realize that you're not going to attract every single mate. And if you did, it probably would be a bad thing. Exactly. And you know what, what's wonderful. I see something a little bit different about what you, what you're doing. It, it, the reasons you're doing it are, are what they are, but here's the thing. You're, you're willing to spend time with that person. So your dates were not like, all right, I've got an hour and a half to take you out to dinner. And uh, then I, I see you next week or maybe two weeks later, I, I can block out another hour and a half for you. So for me, as I've gotten older, the things I screen out for are how much time you're willing to spend. Because time is money in a sense. It's a resource. It's a valuable resource. The more time you're spending, uh, and so your willingness to bring her into your life and into your errands, it's like, hey, you know, I want to spend time with you. You want to come with me while I do these things and we can spend time together. And then you have this flexibility and spontaneity. You see something. Oh, let's do that. Oh, let's go here. And uh, oh, I have to do this. Come with me on that. This is <clears throat> offering your time, which in many ways is more valuable because one of the things that people complain about is, oh, well, I don't see you putting a lot of effort into this. So even if you take uh, someone out to dinner once a week and you drop 150 or $200 or whatever it is. I don't know what it is in New York city. It's probably more than that. Um, all you're saying is I'm willing to give you this tiny bit of resource. Even if it's all of my money, I'm not giving you any of me. I'm not giving you any of my time. And so I personally think that time is a, is a much more expensive resource <laughs> and, uh, if someone won't spend their time with me, if, if they don't make an effort to make room in their life, that's my screening process. I don't really care. Not because I have plenty of money, but I, to me, money in and of itself is really a pretty narrow, uninformative piece of information. I'm also screening for something else. You said I'm giving time. I'm also and I hadn't thought about this before, but I'm also seeing what other people will invest that time. Because one of the things that 
I'm looking for is, is not really a superficial partner. I'm not looking for somebody that I see four hours every evening and I get to have brunch on Sunday with because I'm trying to escape because work is so stressful. I have a lot of flexibility over my time and what I'm looking for is a partner, right? So I'm looking for somebody who also is looking for sort of a similar lifestyle, um, who also is willing to invest time, who I can spend a lot of time with doing everyday stuff and they're okay with that and they're willing to help, right? Because I've had relationships where people are a constant drain on resources, right? And when I say, and I'm not talking about fi just financial, it's it's time, energy, emotions. Um, you use the example of doing a stressful activity. I thought about um, a lot of people like to take people on trips early in a relationship to see how somebody acts when they change the environment and it, there's they're around new people, they're a new environment, they don't have the, the everyday stability that they've nurtured in their nest, <laughs> going back to the animal examples. And so that causes stress, right? And that stress, you can start to see how people behave when they're under st stressful situations. It could be as simple as not having their hair dryer or curling iron or makeup or a guy not forgetting his toothbrush or deodorant or you're both lost trying to get a place or you're late somewhere or they've lost your bag. There's all kinds of things that could happen when you, you leave your nest and uh, you, you have less control in this new environment. It creates stress. And so a lot of people use that as a way to test how somebody interacts. And I, I've never had them describe it as stress, but they're saying, well, I'm going to go on a trip and see how it goes. Yeah, but but you don't have to go on a big expensive trip, right? It just running errands. You how how do you get stuck in traffic? How do you handle that, right? Um, or so so what I liked uh, so much, I liked a lot about what you said. But one of the things that really stuck out for me was when you said how if they're willing to be helpful, right? Because cooperation and communication are are probably uh, probably and we say compromise, but I think we fundamentally misunderstand compromise, which is why no one likes it. Um, but, but I think those things, uh, communication and cooperation really are the foundation of any kind of successful relationship of any kind, really. But, but you know, but since we're talking about romantic, uh, relationships, uh, you know, I think those things and, and really discerning and understanding how someone or where someone falls on the spectrum of communication and cooperation is is crucial if you want to have a, a, a successful partnership. I remember a long time ago, I went on this tour of Victorian homes and they were saying that Victorian homes have a lot of wasted space because they use a lot of the extra resources. If you have the money to build at that time a Victorian home, an upscale Victorian home, that there's a lot of ornamentation that is there only for the sake of ornamentation. It's sort of excess resources. And so I think people do that in relationships, right? They pick a partner, even though they have a lot of financial resources. And so they understand I'm going to expend some resources on, uh, on my mate going shopping at these like upscale stores, um, or spending a ton of money on Rodeo drive or whatever. Like, uh, they know that they're giving that up because they're, they're looking for, but it, for my state of mind, it's really a reflective of what, what I value, basically. And so I guess my point is, if you're listening to this, one of the things that you want to ask yourself is, what is it that you value? 
and understand that you don't want to attract every person into your life. What you need to do is you need to figure out what it is that you need, what is it that you value, and then you screen people out by sort of being yourself and clearly communicating that. Whether you do that through the way that you dress or your body language or where you go to dinner or where you eat, uh, activities you pick, you choose. Otherwise, you end up with these, as you described in the animal kingdom, these uh, situations where you start to have inconsistencies. You take somebody out, out to a bunch of really nice restaurants and you can't sustain it. Or you you get an apartment or house that's more than you can afford, eventually you lose it. Um, and these types of mistakes, I think, cost a lot of people their relationships. Absolutely. And I think, um, and, and at the same time, you know, when we look at other species, um, you know, when it comes to to things like um, communication, uh, basically, even something like a, a black-bellied wren. So in birds in particular, communicating well is incredibly important. And they they never talk over each other. They so so they don't interrupt. You don't see like birds like screaming at each other <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> um, you know, when when for black-bellied wrens, they have these songs that they sing. And, and, and they perfectly time when the, their mate is going to be finished and they start so that it's seamless back and forth communication. And if they, but they can have a bad day. And, and it, so it, it turns out if they start singing over one another, they stop singing altogether and just take a break. And then they come back. Um, I think, uh, if, if you're, out there and you're saying that you want to date and have a, a, a find a partner you know to share your life with it, you've got to be thinking about how do they communicate how do I communicate how cooperative are they how cooperative am I you know so reflecting on what you value but then are you are you offering that you you really can't expect to get something you're not willing to give yeah, I think this. I think this is true both emotionally. I mean, it's definitely a true emotionally. It's also true physically, right? If somebody is r- super out of shape, it's hard to date somebody who really is in shape, right? If somebody is uh, super giving, it's hard to date somebody who only takes. And so, I find this really interesting. So, our producer Mike, he's had a couple criticisms of me. One is I've been going way over in time, which I, I did again today. And the <laughs> second that I don't follow any of the questions that he writes out for me. So, I I want to go back to some of these questions, and we'll sort of wrap up, and I'll talk a lot less. So, the next question is, what makes somebody? And some of the stuff we've already kind of gone over, but we'll still give you a chance to respond. So, what makes someone attractive? How important are physical traits? Um, and what about non-physical traits when it comes to humans and animals? Yeah, so I think that um, some similarities that we see between ourselves and other species are clearly physical attractiveness is important. We have, I think, a broader spectrum of traits that that we can find attractive, and there's more variation for for us. So some people like long hair or healthy, thick, shiny hair. Others are really. Uh, I I have a a big thing about teeth. Um, <laughs> I, I like a good set of teeth. I don't know why. <laughs> um, and, you know, I do know why, actually. It's a, a good indicator of health. And so a lot of times the reasons we find certain traits attractive is they're tied to our overall health and give us information about the quality of a potential mate. And I think, um, you know, that we see those same uh, things happen in other species. How about non-physical traits? 
Well, so there too, uh, uh, once we get, once we know we're attracted to somebody, um, our second sort of, you know, filter is now on non-physical traits and those can be, uh, things like, um, cooperativeness, um, helpfulness, how easily, uh, two individuals communicate with each other. And we see this in other species. So, uh, albatross, as I mentioned, are one example. So the, the pair that can, um, sing and, and, and dance and coordinate their, their activities easily tend to stay together. Also personality traits. So, um, how adventurous you are, how active you are, um, how adaptable, flexible you are, um, in, in other species, we, we have ways to measure personality that we, we call kind of bold and shy. So there's a spectrum and bold, you know, might be adventurous, adaptable, more willing to try new things. And we are finding in other species, so one of them, um, the great tit, but many others, that individuals that are more similar in personality <clears throat> tend to do better when they're paired up with each other. Um, we also know this for friendships. So chimpanzees, um, you know, two chimps that are more similar to each other in personality, hang out more. <laughs> and so, and because if you're going to be in a relationship, it kind of requires that you spend a lot of time together. Uh, we are finding that per similarity and personality and interests or, or, um, uh, you know, these kind of non-physical traits leads to better outcomes for both us and other species. Describe some of the similarities and differences between courtship process in humans and animals and assuming there's attraction, how does someone assess compatibility? Yeah, so so some of the courtship, it's very similar. Um, in other species, we have gift giving, um, you know, and, and those gifts can are usually food oriented <laughs> in other species, which is kind of analogous to there's a lot of feeding that goes on in human courtship, <laughs> um, whether it's you know, men taking women out to dinner or women cooking for men. Um, that, that's sort of a, you know, a feeding. There's an inviting into the space. So the sand dwelling spider, um, you know, basically gives up his, his spider cave uh, to female spiders, but they got to dance first. So there's some dancing and those are similar courtship, um, you know, strategies that, that um, happen for us and for, other species. Um, there's, there's building things or fixing things, you know, uh, um, whether together or alone, that's a courtship behavior that we see in, um, in other species and in humans. And so interestingly though, a lot of the courtship behaviors are for, for other species are, are really tied to displaying the, the strength of the physical traits some of the other things like dancing together um, that we might see in a, something called a, a grebe. Um, they have a beautiful courtship dance. They're a, they're a water bird um, and they have a very uh, coordinated dance. And so the, the partners, the, the, the two individuals that do it really well coordinated, um, that's an indication of how compatible they're going to be in, in coordinating activities that have to do with nest building and taking care of offspring and, and things like that. And so in that sense, it's not a, a way to assess a physical 
trait. It's a way to assess a behavioral trait that matters for the partnership. And so I think that, um, you know, the more we do behaviors together uh, when we're dating someone um, and how easy those things happen can be an indicator of how compatible you are on, on, on a non-physical way and is a way to assess how well you work together towards a common goal. I think about applying this to everything from making dinner to, uh, to dancing, to cleaning your house or apartment or place to even probably one of the reasons religion becomes important. Somebody's Christian or Muslim or Jewish or Hindu and the rituals that are around, like someone setting up a Christmas tree, for example, and, and, and making Christmas dinner. Um, how somebody from a similar culture, it would be easier for them to reach this common goal, as you describe. Yes. And, and that's where, that's why, uh, oftentimes we see that individuals that are more similar to one another actually do, do better uh, as partners, um, on, on, especially on these non, you know, physical traits, but it can vary. So obviously, you know, people from different religious backgrounds, if they're both um, cooperative, uh, outstanding communicators, sharing, you know, equally sharing kinds of individuals, maybe they share their rituals and maybe they create new ones. And so what we see in other species is, you know, usually the couple will create, there's a ritual of, of uh, the dance that happens, but of course there's individual variation. Not, not every grebe performs the dance exactly the same way as every other greed. And so there is this sort of, you know, harmony that has to happen between the, the, the couple and modification. So gibbons are a really great example of this. So um, gibbons are a small um, uh, ape. Uh, and ape is distinguished from monkey with, uh, because apes don't have tails. And so they're small. Um, they're one of the lesser apes. They're found throughout Indonesia and they're monogamous and they form lifelong partnerships. They're, they're socially monogamous. Um, infidelity is a different topic, <laughs> but, um, but so they, they, they form partnerships and they sing, uh, in the mornings and it takes many years for the, um, uh, uh, well, it takes some time for the, the couple to coordinate their song properly. And they practice it every day. <laughs> and, they, and then they get it down. And then they still sing it every single day. They don't, you know, bang out a few notes and call it, you know, all right, we, we're good. They sing the whole song and they sing it together every single day. And so I think that, um, and they learn it together and they create it together. And so I think sometimes, you know, we, some people are better at, than other people or, or, or have a desire to harmonize different rituals and create their own new ones. And every couple, I think that, um, is, is either starting out to date or has been at it for a little while, creates their own rituals. And I think those are important pieces that help bond individuals together. That's awesome. I think about everything from getting up in the morning and getting off to work or wherever you have to go, or if you have a family, getting your kids off to school or getting the day started, the rituals that happen 
at the end of the day, brushing your teeth, washing your face. There's sort of a pattern so you might read, but we sort of fall in these patterns. Or I used the example of holidays earlier, but I can imagine that every anniversary, each couple goes to the same restaurant or they do the same thing or every Christmas they make the same set of dishes, which essentially I used the example of, of every day perfecting the song but every time they have that that event or that ritual, they sort of are constantly renegotiating the terms of that ritual, right? Um, my next question is, some people quickly settle down with one person while others have more casual flings. How does human mating activity compare to that of animals? Is there an ideal number of sexual partners? Oh, gosh. You know, so I don't know. I think I, I might, you know, be on the the edges of, of what, you know, kind of most people think because, you know, for, for humans, I don't think there is one right answer for that. Um, and, and even for other species, uh, even though let's say it's a monogamous species like swans, everybody, you know, thinks swans, uh, they mate for life. They do. Uh, but about 30% of swans cheat. So <laughs> there's, there's, you know, clearly monogamy is not for everyone. Um, when it comes to, you know, ca having some casual partners before settling down, I mean, it depends, right? Uh, like barnacle geese, uh, they, they will date, um, and sometimes they go through multiple, um, geese before they find their special goose. <laughs> um, what they don't do is ever go back and date some, another a goose they broke up with. And I'm, I don't know what causes uh, um the the dating and geese looks like they spend a lot of time together and and they either keep doing that or then they stop doing that <laughs> and if they keep doing that they can keep doing it they'll keep doing it for life if, if after about a few weeks it's not working out they they find another goose and, and so <laughs> some some have to you know someone some are serial daters for a little while until they find their their match and there's nothing, you know, no goose would, would be judging, you know, how could you go through three geese before you found your match, you know? Uh, so, and some find it the first time around, but that's very different than say, you know, a 13 line ground squirrel, a squirrel never really finds a life partner. That's not what squirrels are about. And, um, so it's, it's all, uh, there's no parental care. There's no, you know, nest to build. There's, there's just, we mate and then you go away. And so, you know, some, sometimes in our lives we're in a phase that we want to act like squirrels and that's totally fine. As far as I'm concerned, as long as we're honest about what we're doing to others, you know, you don't see squirrels pretending that they're albatrosses to, uh, you know, to other, other squirrels. So, be whoever you are, wherever you are in your life stage. And if you're also not someone who is particularly monogamous or interested in monogamy, because that happens, we, we know that. Um, I think that there's a segment of the human population that is just doesn't feel that way. Be honest about that because there's others that also feel that way. And then you can have the relationship that will work based on that value system. So I don't think that there's a right number or too many sexual partners or an optimal sexual you know, number of sexual partners. I think it, it, it varies. I think we put a lot of social and cultural and religious overtones to all of our behaviors that 
maybe don't necessarily serve us sometimes. It goes back to this idea of cheating, right? When when I say cheating, I mean people are trying to sort of cheat the system too much. Like a woman is wearing Spanx and the guy gets a clothes off and it's like, well, what did I just buy? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I don't mean like paying for prostitutes. I mean you took her on a date, took her to dinner. But like, what did I just what did I just buy? If uh, or a girl is dating a guy and thinks that he's at a certain financial level, which is what he's projecting, and then finds out he's not and he ends up leaving. Like, I think the same thing also happens in relationships. I think you're absolutely right. There are a lot of people who might be at the same exact stage of life you are. And it's when I've seen the most problems when people tried to cheat that. For example, I have a friend of mine who would tell every girl that he dated that he wanted to marry them. He wanted them to have his baby. Like he would say all these outlandish things and he didn't really mean them. And then that would cause the girls to get really upset at him later on versus I've met other guys who are like, ah, you know, I'm, I'm not looking for anything serious. I just communicate that every once in a while. Somebody doesn't like that, but uh, like my life's going pretty good. My relationships are at a place where I'm happy, but it's, I think that there's a certain level of maturity with that, right? Because the person who wants to cheat the system says is going to tell every, each party what they want to hear in order to maximize their own gain. And that works in the short term, but it's both in the animal kingdom and the human kingdom. It doesn't seem to be effective long-term strategy. No, it's not. And, and it's also very unnecessary. You know, I mean, you know, and that's the thing is, is, is of course, anytime someone's deceived, um, it's not going to be well received. <laughs> and, and so I think that it, not only is it a, 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 you know, you need a certain level of maturity to do that. But I think that might be more because we we have this cultural message that says, you know, this is what they want to hear. But you don't actually know that. Um, we, there's a lot of assumptions that go into I tell people what I think they want to hear so that I can get what I want. You know, the reality is, is that that you don't actually know what they want to hear. <laughs> and, and and so if you just tell people what it is, if they don't want to hear it, don't worry, they will go away. And you won't have to say it again, uh, you know. And, and and so I think that for me, this would be a trait, and this is probably why people get upset. It's a it's a you know a trait that isn't indicative of a, a successful long term relationship. Therefore, if you're uncovered in in doing that or communicating something that's not true or false, we 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 want to get away from that as much as possible because. Now you're an unreliable partner. This is awesome. This leads me to my last question. In longer term relationships, how do animals and humans communicate the same? How do they communicate differently? How do they resolve conflicts? And are there such, I mean, you kind of answered the question, but are there such things as cheating breakups in the animal kingdom? Yeah. So, um, so in terms of communication, I think that for all our use of words, um, we really have a very difficult time communicating, much more so than other species. Other species go to great lengths to avoid miscommunication um, because communication, miscommunication leads to conflict. And they're really trying to avoid conflict because conflict, uh, you, you use this a little, uh, you know, uh, uh, emotionally draining. It's, so maybe emotionally draining for us, but it's also time consuming um, and it's stressful. And so, other species go to great lengths to not miscommunicate. And they do this by basically giving full and complete information, 
we tend to communicate saying, well, you know what I mean. But actually, there's a tremendous amount of variation in the understanding or the meaning of words to people. So I might use one word and it means this to me, but it might mean something different to say you. Um, and so if I don't check on that, uh, th then I, you could have heard me say something I didn't mean to say, or you would have understood something. And so this is not so much of a problem with animals, other animals. And I think that we rely too much on, well, I've used words and therefore you've understood everything I've said. Whereas other species are, are very clear and, and I use an example of prairie dogs. I studied prairie dogs and when there's a coyote coming, they don't just like bark out a couple of sounds for like, there's something coming. <laughs> no, they say there's a coyote coming from this direction around this speed, it was about this size. And, and this is what is packed into their call. And we know this from, from analyzing their, their vocal communication. And so the reason for that is because if I just say something's coming, you have no idea how to react to it. If I tell you it's coyote coming from this direction, da, 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 you know exactly what to do. And so we do this all the time in relationships where we say, hey, can you pick up the clothes off the floor? Sure. And then like five hours later, now somebody's mad because you didn't pick it up. Well, but you didn't ask me to do it right then. I will do it. But my concept of time or urgency might be very different than, than yours. And so this leads to miscommunication and conflict very frequently in human relationships, much more so than in other species. Now, when it does, when conflict does happen, we also have not such great, ways of resolving them or the couples that are successful do and the couples that aren't don't whether they stay together or not many people have conflicts don't resolve them well and still stay together which is nothing that would never happen in another animal species um, birds when they start bickering that's the sign that they're breaking up and then they do break up so if they're not communicating well and there's a lot of you know problems and then they actually start to peck at each other, <laughs> it's over. <laughs> they don't continue to do this and uh, with a, you know, they don't continue in the partnership. But if you have a disagreement, which happens in any social species and in any type of relationship, some, some wonderful things about other species is because continual um, conflict creates tension and they wanna reduce tension, they make up pretty quickly and that can be something as, as direct as a hug. Um, and we're talking, you know, within 15 minutes of a, of a conflict between, say, um, a baboon. They, they might hug and then groom each other, which for them involves picking through hair, you know, to calm everybody down. And sometimes it's too soon to touch. <laughs> and so in other species, they might sit a few feet apart. and um, not ready to look at you yet I'm not ready to touch you but I you know there's an element of I allow you to still be near me and this this tells you that we're okay and I think that in our human relationships one of the problems is that we look at our relationships sometimes some people do as to have power over and we think that conceding or reconciling quickly is giving away our power but 
relationships, long-term successful relationships in other species and in humans is about, um, about equality and cooperation. And if you're seeking power through your relationships, then you are what we call a despot. <laughs> and despotic relationships are not cooperative unions. Um, they're, they're filled with conflict. And so I think that we make the mistake of thinking that if we reconcile quickly, we're allowing someone to get away with something. But it's not true. You're just saying, in the long run, we're okay, even though I'm still mad at you. And so I think that those things are really important for the health of relationships. And an other animal species resolve the conflicts quickly. They reconcile. They have some type of physical contact, even if it's just proximity. Um, they don't give the silent treatment for days or weeks. Um, this kind of hostility uh, would result in a breakup in any rationally thinking other animal species. And they do break up. And I use rationally thinking um, sort of tongue in cheek, right? Uh, but they use the interaction with their partner as a cue of how well the relationship is going. And if it's not going well, they break up. This is so fascinating. Uh, my last question, any other advice for the people who are listening to this, if they want to learn from the animal kingdom and how to make their dating strategies or relationships more effective? Yeah, well, you know, I think that, that you offer such, such similar and outstanding uh, advice that, you know, embrace the, the things that make you you, even if it's your physical attractiveness or quirkiness, celebrate those things, don't mask them be, you know, learn to embrace who you are, both physically and not phys non-physical traits. So your personality and your things that make you unique and that you have to offer. And I think uh, you'll find that there is someone that will find that attractive. And, and obviously, if there are things you have to work on for yourself, do that. Uh, the, you know, uh, and, and do that for yourself. And when you're actually dating, I think one of, I, one of the things I really, you know, ag agree strongly with what you were saying is, you know, yes, we have to display uh, aspects of, of who we are and, and what we have to offer. And, and I think think beyond the box of just spending money or some of the more traditional messages we have about dating. And, um, you know, whether it's dancing or picking flowers on your way to go meet the person um, or something uh, that can make you stand out. So then once you are in a relationship, I think um, learning how to communicate effectively, uh, learning, you know, how to cooperate, understanding that relationships aren't about power, they're about sharing, and we see this in other species, learning how to resolve conflicts easily so that you can return to a harmonious state. And if you can't, I, I, I still say be like a barnacle goose and break up and don't revisit that relationship again. Jennifer, you have been absolutely incredible. This has been at least for me, a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. And if and if you're listening and you want to learn more about Jennifer, we're going to put some links in the post on the Craft Christmas website. 
and in the description of this podcast so you can find out about her and her books and her work more easily. Thank you again. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. It's dating coach Chris Thona here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I do to get them on the show for you. Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media, Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. And lastly, go to the Craft Christmas website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.